Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio Show, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important educational issues of the day, a conversation that brings the state leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join in on the conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I'll be your host this morning. A couple of ground rules. First, we will not be using the chat room feature on the show today, and if you are interested in calling in, a few things you should know. To call in, you dial 1-347-989-8904, and when you're ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1, and that will indicate on the switchboard that you're ready to uh, ask a question. I have someone who will be screening the callers. Her name is Christy, so that she can get the name of the caller and your question or topic. Also, if you're on the phone line, I will ask that you turn down the volume on the computer since they are on a different time sequence and it's a little confusing. Finally, I will not be taking callers right away, but will in about 10 minutes or so, so be patient. As I go around the state telling, talking to board members, administrators, and parents, I tell them that education in New Jersey, public education in New Jersey, is at a turning point. Everything is on the table. Tenure reform, charter schools, choice, teacher evaluations, school funding. It is a time when if you want to make a difference by getting involved, there is no better time. That is why I'm excited about today's guest, because she and her group exemplify what a grassroots advocacy is all about. And I'm not just talking about what their positions are on in terms of the issues, but their process they use and how they saw the need to get involved in this. My guest is Julia Sass-Rubin from the grassroots group SOS and J. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Um, for those of us who are listening and don't know anything about SOS and uh, J, can you just tell us a little bit about what the group does? Right. So we, uh, as you mentioned, we are a completely grassroots group. Uh, we began, oh gosh, I guess about nine months ago because a small group of us were very worried about what we saw as an attack on public education and we support public education very strongly and wanted to do whatever we could to ensure that all children would have access to public education. We were focused on New Jersey, but we feel strongly that all children in general should have access to a high-quality public education. So um, we decided to try to organize others in the state because we were told that uh, legislators didn't think they heard from parents very much. They felt that you know parents didn't care or, or weren't uh, articulating their wishes very clearly, and we knew that others had to feel as strongly as we did. So we started reaching out across the state, and in a matter of nine months, we went from you know six or seven people sitting in a living room to having members in each of New Jersey's 40 legislative districts. Um, and wow. we are um, we're completely grassroots, so we have no 501c3 status. We don't have a staff. No one's paid, and there's no external funding, and we like it that way. It's exhausting, <laughs> but I think it's also extremely motivating for people um, to know that they are the ones who make things happen, and if they don't show up, it doesn't happen. You can't uh, delegate it to a staff person, and it also means that we're not dependent on anyone or relying on anyone for funding, so we are completely independent and democratic. We have... Uh, we call them our organizers, you know, just a group of people, about 30 of us at this point, who are willing to do more than um, respond to information. And so 
so um, they are all over the state, and it's all of our responsibilities to just keep our communities informed. And uh, we also have just the general membership, and our decisions are all made democratically. So um, anyone who is engaged can vote on anything that comes up. And uh, we have three policy positions that we are working on, or three policy areas that we're working on. One of them is that we um, are opposed to vouchers, uh, in other words, publicly funding private and religious schools through tax credits mm-hmm. or direct appropriations. Um, we fully support, uh, or we support fully funding the formula, and um, we believe the school that funding child, formula. Yes, the school funding formula. We believe that every child should have access to a high quality education, regardless of whether that child's family is wealthy or poor. And to do that, you have to adequately fund the schools, especially the schools that educate a lot of the low income students. And our third area is uh, reform of the existing charter legislation, and uh, we are not against charter schools. In fact, a number of us have children at charter schools, but we do think that the current charter law in New Jersey is broken, and um, there are three substantial areas of reform that we're seeking, and I have a feeling we'll be talking about that a bit yes, more. Yes, uh, I was going to be going. Uh, just to remind our callers or uh, listeners, we're talking to Julia Sass-Rubin with uh, SOSNJ. If you want to ask a question, you dial one three four seven. 989-8904, and press 1 when you have a comment or a question. Yeah, it's, it's, save um, our schools, it's Save Our Schools, NJ. We've kind of moved away from the SOS. This is sort of one of those funny stories about what happens when you're grassroots. You don't know what you don't know. So we didn't get the URL for SOS and J, so we've kind of stopped using that because we find that people are confused okay. when they try to look us up and they can't find us under that acronym. So it's really just saveourschoolsnewjersey.org. Because we well, also don't have the URL for .com, so we want to make sure people know where to find it. Well, you're so grassroots, you don't have the, the funding to do all that type of research. And I have right. to admit, you, I've seen your group all over, and I'm very impressed with how you get people out and motivated. Um, let's, we'll start with charter schools, because I was at a meeting recently, and it was almost completely uh, – it was completely suburban schools. And 13 years ago, 10 years ago, charter schools were not an issue – too much in the in the suburban areas, but it seems like in the last few years that that has become an issue. Uh, how would you like to see charter schools created or started? I know you support them, so you must have a framework for how you think they should be created or started. Right. Well, I think you know we're we're more agnostic in terms of how they should be created or started in terms of you know whether the authorizer is uh, strictly the state or others. Um, but we feel very, very strongly that what's broken right now is that um, there is no ability from local communities, from the voters, from the taxpayers, from the parents, to weigh in on whether um, a community has a charter school or not. So right now, I'm, I'm sure you and your listeners are, are aware of this, but just, just to make sure, right now if I want to start a charter school, I basically get an application and I submit it to the Department of Education, and I don't have to have the approval of my fellow community members. So I can start a school even if 90% of my community hates the idea and really doesn't want one in the community. It's it's really not their decisions to make. So it's it's a very undemocratic process. So I submit an application to the Department of Education and they decide if it's okay for me to have a charter school in my community or not. And um, ostensibly the community's input is important. The community has 60 days to respond, but there's really no evidence on the ground that it matters what the community wants. Um, and this has just created tremendous anger and strife um, and divisions within communities, both urban and suburban, um, and rich and poor. 
you know, it's just disenfranchised people, and we just think that's wrong. So one of the things that we are advocating for is to require community approval before a new charter school starts, whether it's authorized by the state, which is right now the only way it can be authorized in New Jersey, or it's authorized by uh, a school board, or, you know, it's authorized by a nonprofit. We would prefer that there not be multiple authorizers, but whoever's authorizing it, it has to get community approval first. Uh, because what's happening right now is just very, very destructive. Uh, how do you see that process working? Can we, do you have a vote on I, I know there's a bill, A3852, uh, in the Assembly this Monday, right. the 23rd. I, I assume you are supporting it. As it yes, is. that is a bill that we have been very supportive of, and um, it also its companion bill in the Senate. We are very, very supportive of that bill. The way this particular bill works, and this was, you know, we would prefer – that the way this worked is every community got to vote on it, uh, probably in the spring elections because that's when the budgets are approved for the communities that, and, and the school boards are elected for the communities that have directly elected school boards. Um, the way that this bill actually has it is a little bit different, which is that for the type 1 districts where they have an appointed school board, the board decides. Uh, and for type 2 districts, there is a direct popular election. And you this, know, Is it, the school board or the, school, the board of school estimate? Right, uh, the latter. Okay. And that would not be our preference because we think there should be more of a direct democracy, but I think it's still a vast improvement over the current system because schools are, uh, you know, they, they have local impact, local schools, and so the closer you bring the decision-making to the local level, the better it is. And while the Department of Education is accountable to the governor, who is an elected official, obviously, the level is so far removed from any specific community that it's very difficult for a community to really shape that decision. You know, if the governor decides or if the commission of education decides to approve a school and the community is angry, there's not a whole lot they can do about it. Whereas uh, a local school board is, even if they're appointed, they're appointed generally by an elected official, and that official mm -hmm. is elected locally, so they're much more aware of what the community's wishes are. So even though that wasn't exactly how we wanted it, we're, we're comfortable with this, and it's a huge improvement over the current system, which is completely non-democratic, and I mean that with a small d. Right. Uh, as I stated in, in the opening, uh, I was at a suburban school function, uh, Garden State Coalition, in fact, and uh, the suburb, uh, charter schools were a big issue there. What's the difference between setting up in, in – uh, is there a difference in the charter schools in urban and suburban setting – or do you not make a distinction on how charter schools should be set up? We do not make a distinction. Um, I think there is too much uh, – there are too many distinctions being made between wealthy and poor communities and suburban and urban communities and too little democracy that's being allotted to urban communities uh, and that we just don't see any justification for that. We think everybody deserves democratic rule, and certainly poor people have every right to democratic rule as well. So why would we make that distinction um, if a community does not have high-performing schools, in principle, if they feel the charters are a good idea, they would vote them in. Um, so we, we really don't make that distinction. I know some have, have encouraged that distinction, but uh, I think that's, an, you know, that's another division that we're trying to heal. There's really no reason why there should be these artificial distinctions made, in our view. And, and if the charter schools, from your point of view, if there's a community support for a charter school, which there may very well be and probably is, in excuse me, some urban or underperforming sections, the community would probably support the idea of a charter school. Right, right. So and I, and I, we believe in democracy. You know, we believe that it works and that it should be allowed to work. 
and I guess from your point of view, it might even give the charter school more support because now they have right. the backing of the community. Well, you know, um, I think. I'm sorry, may I just add one more thing? I think, you know, the analogy that I like to use is imagine that you, I mean, public education is a communal good, right? So if you think about other communal goods, um, high-quality roads, right, and infrastructure in general would be another communal good. We all pay for it. We pay for it whether we use it or not, and we all benefit from it because it's there. Uh, It's not like buying a sweater where I go and I spend money and I get what I want specifically and... It's really my purchase. This is not a purchase. This is a communal good that only works if we're all in it. So imagine if we applied the way we approve charter schools to the way that we take care of roads. So I decide and my neighbor decides that we want a purple street. And we go to the town council and we say, we'd like our street paved purple. And the town council says, I'm sorry, we're sorry, but you know your neighbors really prefer gray and we don't have money to pave your street purple unless we pave everybody's streets purple. So then we say, okay, we're going to go to the state, and we go to the Department of Transportation, and we say, we'd like our street paved purple. Here's an application. And the Department of Transportation in Trenton says, you know you're right. You have a right to pave your street purple. And then we get our street paved purple, and the town pays for that paving. And the next street over decides they want to be green because they don't like being gray either. And after four or five streets have had their selected color dictated by the Department of Transportation, there's no more money left to fill potholes for the rest of the town. Now, that sounds preposterous, but in effect, that's what's happening with charter schools. Individuals are able to make these decisions regardless of the wishes of the community. Okay. Uh, besides starting charter schools, uh, I know there's been some concern uh, expressed by your group and others about the demographics in some of the charter schools. Yes. Their makeup. Uh, what What are some of your concerns? Well, our concern is that um, as a whole, and there's some vast ex- exceptions here. I mean, that you, you have to keep in mind that charter schools are very diverse, and some of them are doing an extraordinary job, a very challenging job, and others are, are not doing as well. And I'm not speaking so much to the academic performance of the students. I think that's a whole other set of issues. I'm speaking to educating students that reflect the demographics of the sending district. As a whole, charters do not do a very good job of that. They do not reflect the demographics of their communities in four specific areas uh, in terms of the proportion of very poor students in the district, so specifically students who receive free lunch, in terms of the proportion of uh, fairly poor students, the students who receive uh, reduced price lunch, in terms of limited English proficiency students who don't, who are not uh, maybe native-born or uh, whose parents don't speak English and they have some limited capacity as well, and in terms of special needs students, all four of those populations are underrepresented, and special needs and limited English proficiency are particularly underrepresented in the demographics of charters. And again, some charters do a much better job than others. Now, a lot of this is not intentional. It's a function of the way charters admit students. Um, you know, if you have more demand than spots, which most charter schools, that is the case, um, and we can talk about why that's the case as well, um, you have to enter into a lottery. And the the parents who have the capacity, the resources to find out about charter schools and to apply tend to be parents who, first of all, speak English for obvious reasons and who are probably not so poor that their energy is consumed with just trying to keep their family fed and housed. So you inherently mm-hmm. tend to get more affluent students, more likely to be English-speaking families, 
And then if you have a child who's special needs, especially if they're more than mildly special needs, uh, you may decide that the charter doesn't have the capacity to meet that child's needs and um, not enroll in the lottery. So it's it's not that the charters are in, you know are, are discriminating in some way. It's just a function of the way students are admitted. But as a result, they do have this kind of you know creamed off population in the sense that all four of those categories are much more expensive to educate than general population students. So what happens as a function of this kind of you know this bifurcated population with charters having a different population than the sending districts is the more expensive, more challenging students are left in the traditional public schools, but a lot of the resources leave to go to the charters. And so the schools that are educating the more expensive students have fewer dollars to do it with. And there's also obviously social implications of having a population that is, you know, divided in that way where the charters have, um, for example, a lot fewer of the Latino students because of the LEP issue. Um, so in effect, it's it's resegregating schools. I mean, we have a very segregated system as it is by income and, unfortunately, by, and also by race. This is increasing that segregation. And, again, I, it's not that the charters are doing it intentionally, but it is a problem nevertheless. Well, how do so, we get around that problem? I mean, because I would agree. I don't think it's intentional. They they have a lottery system, and you've seen enough uh, videos of those, and people really are trying to get in. How would Do you have a suggestion for how to get around that? Well, I think one option that was discussed was to set some sort of a, a quota in effect, but we felt that that was just not politically viable. Um, so it was actually it's interesting at a, a hearing that was held a few months ago in at, at the Education Committee of the Assembly, Assemblyman Malone uh, from the 30th District suggested this idea of an opt-out lottery. Right now, the lottery is structured so that you have to apply to be considered. And the opt-out lottery idea would be that every parent whose child attends a district with at least one charter school would automatically, their child would be entered in those lotteries for one or however many charter schools there are, unless the parents choose to leave them out. So they'd have to literally check a box to say, I don't want my child considered for this particular school's lottery. And the hope is that by doing that, you increase the proportion of LEP uh, limited English proficiency and uh, poor children. Now, whether it increases the proportion of special needs children, it's not clear because I think some of those omissions are intentional, so ch- parents may still choose to opt out. There is another piece to this. You know, I don't think most charters are excluding those students, but some charters do counsel out, um, and you can see this in very high attrition rates, cohort attrition rates at some of the sort of high-flying elite charters where you know you might have a class that starts with 70 and ends up with 30 four years later. And a lot of the kids that are, whether encouraged to leave or leave on their own, you know, we don't really know for a fact, uh, tend to be the kids that are the most, more challenging and perhaps uh, lower scoring on the standardized test. So that's a whole other issue. But at mm-hmm. least in terms of the lottery, uh, we're hoping that this this idea that Representative uh, Assemblyman Malone had would help to address that. Uh, and that is part of a bill that's being introduced on Monday as well by Assemblyman Catino with a whole bunch of other reform provisions around accountability and transparency that we have been um, advocating for as well. You know, uh, I hadn't thought about the op, uh, the counseling now, but aren't some charters, don't they have like stricter rules for academic achievement, longer hours that they demand of both staff and students, and maybe a student thinks that they can go into it, and right. then after six months they decide, you know, I want to get home at 
4 o'clock. I only get home right. at 5. Yeah, I'm sure that there is some of that as well. Absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't think we're, it's not that anyone is evil or is trying to do something bad. I think some of this is structural, but it has mm-hmm. significant consequences. As I said, it has big financial consequences and it has social consequences for what happens in those communities and how the population of students is, you know, divided up between charters and traditional schools. Yeah, so, I do know the financial toll uh, consequence in that the regular district now has already sent their funds for that student to the charter school, and if the student leaves in January, halfway through the year, and comes back to the regular school, the money does not come back. Right. After that. October 15th, the money does not follow that child back to the district. Correct. But to be fair, it, the same thing happens if a child goes to the charter after October 15th. So right. um, assuming they're coming from the same district, it would be kind of a wash, but if they're coming from a, dis- a different district, in other words, if a child leaves and they take another child to replace them from the same district, then I, I guess financially it's more or less a wash, in the sense that the charter doesn't get paid for that child who's now coming in either. But if it's from a different district, then it would be a problem. I mean, the district that had the first child come back and another, and then the child that replaced that came from a different district, the first district would still be out the funding but would have to educate the child. That was a very uh, convoluted explanation, but <laughs> yeah, uh, you know that Julia, already. But uh, We're talking to Julia Sass-Rubin from uh, Save Our Schools NJ. Uh, I got it right that time. Uh, if you want to ask her a question, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press the number one, and Christy, our screener, will get your comment or question. Um, I, I've heard a lot of concern also that charter schools uh, should be monitored a little bit more closely and maybe given more resources to help them succeed. Uh, do you, does your organization have any concerns about the monitoring of charter schools? Well, we think there's a greater need for transparency and accountability. Uh, We don't have a formal position as to who should provide the oversight. Right now, it really falls in the lap of the Department of Education. And if they are the authorizer, then clearly they should be providing that oversight. But there's definitely a need for greater transparency. Um, I've mentioned this, you know, in other venues, but uh, Bruce Baker, who's a professor of the School of Education at Rutgers, uh, this was he just emailed you know a personal email, but he was trying to do some research, and so he tried to pull 990 forms, which are tax forms that all nonprofits have to file, as you know, if they have more than I think it's twenty five thousand dollars a year in operating uh, expenses. And he tried to pull them for the uh, charter schools in the state to do an analysis that he had done in New York very successfully by doing the same thing, and he could only find them for about a third of the schools. Now, whether you know the others never filed, I mean, it is required by the IRS. Um, or whether they just could not be found because they were not easily accessible. It's not clear. But that's something that should be just a no-brainer. You should be able to go to the DOE website or the website of those charter schools and pull up their tax forms and see how much people are being paid. Another thing that we would like to see is who's making donations. That should be something that's publicly available if the donation exceeds $1,000, for example, because they are being publicly funded. So there's all kinds of transparency that is just assumed um, for publicly funded entities and is not necessarily in place. Um, and then we'd like educational transparency that's much greater. Um, there's been a kind of a back and forth between the Department of Education and Bob Braun from the Star-Ledger around releasing data on performance for free versus reduced lunch students. Right. And the state right now does not release that data. You cannot differentiate between free lunch and reduced lunch in terms of test performance. Now, why does that matter? Well, there's a big difference between free lunch, which could include children that are literally homeless, and reduced lunch, which goes up to basically working-class kids. And 
uh, we see that difference in their test performance. So if we're going to be looking at you, know, you can have another conversation around whether standardized tests are a good way to evaluate child, children's performance. But if That's we're going to show. use yeah. right, but if we're going to be using that metric, we need to have access to that data. And right now we do not. The state does not release that data. They say they do not track it, but they certainly don't release it. We don't have uh, attrition, cohort attrition rates. That is something else that should absolutely be publicly available. We should be able to see, you know, a, a cohort that starts, let's say, in grade three at a charter school, we should be able to see how many of those kids have left by grade six or seven for every school. And there's a number of these kind of transparency provisions that should just be there. They're commonsensical. They're the right thing to do. So um, we feel very strongly about that. And I think there are technical assistance components that clearly not all charters are being equally well managed. Many are extremely well run, are very transparent, and accountable, but we need to make sure that every school is like that. I would say every public school and every traditional public school and every uh, charter school. So okay. yes, we would it like may, to see that. It in may life. seem uh, to our listeners that there's an anti-charter sentiment here. What, give me a what would you say is a benefit to having charter schools as part of our public education venue? Well, you know, we 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 are not opposed to charter schools, and I think uh, for those who would who would say, well, we'd like to just see charter schools go away. I think when you have 70-some schools, many of which are very high function, you know, it's just it, it's cruel to talk about shutting down schools when they're functional, right? You've got a lot of kids and families who are very happy and they're functional schools, and, and that's, just, that, that's just not a viable approach. We are neither pro nor con. We don't really have, like, a, a political philosophy about charters. I mean, we do as individuals, but we don't as an organization. We just feel that anything that relates to public education this strongly needs to be accountable and needs to be maximally optimized. You know, it should be it should be transparent, it should be efficient, it should be fair. And that's really where we're heading with it. Okay. Um I have a caller. Let me see. Stephanie Stephanie from Jersey City, I think you had a question as to uh why people are or comment as to why people are leaving the public schools, at least in some places, and going to charter schools. Is that correct, Stephanie? No, I don't have a question about that. I have a question for Ms. Rubin, um, that if 90% of a community doesn't want a charter school, then won't the charter school simply fail? I mean, how is it? Because in, she said that on one hand. On the other hand, she said, well, people are leaving public schools to go to charter schools. So I would ask if, this, if, if that particular public school is doing so well, why would, would people be leaving? And then she talked, then there was a third thing, and I'm sorry it's a lot. But well, let's she, say, you know what, can we take one question yeah, yeah, at a time? Yeah, take those two. Yeah, because okay, I have no, ahead, no memory ahead. whatsoever, so I won't yeah. remember the first question by the time <laughs> you get the third one out well, I wrote this all down because well, I Well, that's me it. too, so. Uh, can so the 90% thing, question? I mean, I, I don't quite get that. Right. So if, if in fact, a community – well, first of all, it depends on the size of the community, right? So you could have a charter school that draws only a little bit on any given community. So you don't really need overwhelming community support for there to be enough people to fill that class. Um, and I, I'll tell you – I'll give you That's an example – I'm sorry. I don't. I don't. I don't quite get that. You're, what you okay, said so let's was say ninety percent of the community doesn't want, and I guess you were talking right. about your community doesn't want. No, 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 charter, no. I'm not talking about my community. I was just using that as an example. So well, you, was, have, uh, you have a charter. Well, well, hold on, everyone. I think what uh, Julia was talking about was if there was a vote, she was supporting a vote in the community. Uh, a community votes for a charter school if that was the law. 
Uh, am I right, Julie, on that? Yeah. Yeah, I was just okay. making an analogy that the way it works right now is that even if 90% of the community doesn't want it, it doesn't matter because they don't really have a say. I wasn't speaking about a specific community. Okay, I was just okay, that got it. All right, so it, forget it that. Really All right, matter. I understand. So forget okay. that question. You okay, also okay, so that question. Yeah, I thank you for clarifying that. Okay, but I thought you meant that in your community. All right. That's oh, done. no, 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 no. I have no okay, idea. Okay, so so the other question is you said something about 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 people jumping from a public school, a district school. Charters are also public schools, by the way. Um, jumping the district school to go to a charter. So if if a char- if charters are are you know not all that, then why would people be doing that? And I understand that in the suburbs it may be different. I live in a city of 28,000, where there are 28,000 kids, 30% of which do not ever graduate high school. Right. So I don't think I ever said charters aren't all that. I think, you know, the challenge is this issue gets so charged because, unfortunately, it's been so politicized, um, and, and not always by people who have the best interest of children in mind. And you know, But I think, unfortunately, it's become very divisive. And so the irony is that depending on who I'm speaking to, people either accuse us of being in cahoots with charters or being anti-charter, and we're really neither. We're neutral on whether a charter is good or bad, or you know, a particular school could be excellent. I was on a panel the other day with the person who runs Marion P. Thomas. I think it's an excellent school. Um, does so many things extremely right. Um, but I think, you know, obviously, like every other public school, not every school is the same. Um, so we, we really don't say the charters aren't all that. We're just saying there's some problems with the existing legislation, and we'd but like you're to But you're making an extra step to form a charter in places where kids do not get an equal education. And I know that some charters are, are better than others, for sure, and some of them are failing and some of them are not. But I can tell you that in Jersey City we have a failing public school system for the most part. When you have one high school, one, maybe, and one other that has a magnet school and a great magnet, and those two schools are great, what happens to the kids who don't test into those schools? I mean, I have to ask you that. It's different in the suburbs. So you don't support a vote by the community on... Whether I do not. I do not because those same disenfranchised people who don't get it together to send their kids to charter schools are sure not going to come out and 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 support one, you know, and support like uh, you know, and vote on should this school happen or not. You know what I'm saying? It's like you can't have it both ways. I guess. Well, all right, I'm going to uh, okay. Stephanie. I'm going to put you on hold because I have another caller in a few Okay, a great. Minute. But I, 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 I do want Julie to answer this. Julie, just hold on. Julia, she makes a point, particularly in a large city, like in a, a suburban town, there's a property tax implication for opening a, a, a charter school. But in a big city where it might be a community that, a section of the city that might overwhelmingly support it where the school is, maybe the whole city doesn't. Would that be an issue? Or, I well, mean, there is yeah. a market for charter schools in some of these cities. Right. I, democracy is not perfect, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of problems with it, but as my father used to say, it's still the best system in the world. I, I We fully recognize that there may be situations where the vote is not going to be optimal, but how do you differentiate? I mean, if you say, okay, we're going to decide that school districts that pay 50% or more of their local school budgets get to vote and those who pay less don't, then in effect you're saying rich people get to vote 
and get to exercise democracy and poor people don't. Or in districts where the traditional public schools are getting these kinds of scores, get to vote, and the ones who are below that don't. But we know that test scores really reflect poverty more than anything else. So if you differentiate on that basis, again, you're just saying poor people don't deserve a vote. I mean, the the whole premise of a democratic system is you have to convince your neighbors of your argument to get them to agree with you. And right now, it's it's a completely top-down model. Whether a charter school is good or bad, it, it doesn't really matter. The Department of Education makes that determination, and whether it's right for the community or not, the community is left out of the equation. And, and I, I don't really see how you make that distinction between one community having that democracy and another community not. In general, your 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 associate your group's uh, views are that we need to get more community involvement in the entire the Absolutely. process, no matter what. Well, but uh, that we was another... our whole our whole point of starting was to bring the community back in, the parents, the grandparents. You know, we just felt that we were being shut out of the process. So yeah, that okay, that is that... an important principle. Okay, Stephanie, uh, I'll maybe bring you back later, but uh, thanks for your good comments. We have Catherine from Long Branch. Catherine, uh, what was your question? Okay, here's my question. Um, okay. My understanding of charter schools is, number one, that they're able to do things a little differently than traditional public schools. And I also thought that in having public charter schools in New Jersey, one of the benefits was that someone or some process would be taking place that would identify those different things that charter schools were doing that could be adopted by all public schools. I want to know if there's a process for that to happen. You know, is someone looking at that? I'll give you an example. Um, In a lot of urban settings where parents go to work early and get off late, Charter schools are a benefit to those families because there's guided supervision after school or they're extending learning opportunities um, that enrich the youngsters. And so that helps. That's happening at the charter school, but in the same district it may not be happening at a traditional public school. I want to know, is there someone in the education department, someone looking at these differences and saying, aha, this is what should be happening in all public schools. Another example is less summertime. You know, I don't know why we still have summer in these schools. That's <laughs> right. We're not agrarian anymore. It's true. Right. Uh, okay. I think uh, people want to take vacations. Julia, I mean, there's she has a couple of good points. Right, that was excellent points. Right, right now, the original there is intent, nobody doing but that. But to share good ideas, which I don't see happening at no. no. Well, see, then you know, see, this this bothers me as a taxpayer, because the because I've 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 always supported public schools, and so if we have a second class of public schools that's doing something different, and they may be doing something very well, and it's not starting to happen in all public schools, then it's not reaching the purpose for which they were started, which was to improve all public schools, not just charter public schools. Okay, I'm going to ask uh, Julia to answer that. Julia, I'll add one uh, one comment to Catherine's. One, Catherine, uh, the teacher contract that most school districts have would prohibit those really extra long hours in the summer hours as as it is now. And charter schools are not restricted by those contracts with the, their staff. 
So when the staff comes on, the staff Long-time generally NGA, knows that they're going to NGA work. Long-time NGA member, and that can be changed because, you know, unions are not opposed to what's basis. doing what's best for the public. And what's best for the public and the education of our children can come first, even with unions. But you have to be able to show this and lay it out. You know, right. I don't think NJAA should be about having teachers time off in the summer. That's not what it's about. It's about professionalism and ensuring appropriate compensation for teachers, which is not happening also. But I would like um, someone to be talking about addressing how we need to change all public schools to the benefit of the learner. Okay, yeah, I think Catherine, you make an excellent point. I'm going to put you on hold and so Julie can answer your question. Thank you. I think I think that's an excellent point, Catherine. And, in fact, one of the things that we have been also promoting, I didn't really touch on this just because there's so much going on, but is uh, more sharing of innovation both ways, both from the traditional public schools to charter schools and from charter schools to the traditional public schools. We, we share your perspective that there really hasn't been any uh, systematic effort to do that. And, frankly, they're being pitted against each other which in this concept of educational competition, which we don't believe is is a very smart way to approach public goods. And so there's every disincentive to share information because if you have something that's working, it becomes like, you know, your brand, your competitive difference. So why would you share it with the competition? And, again, that's just that's a crazy model for public education. We don't have competition around clean air. You know, we don't have competition around making sure our streets are paved well. This is a communal good. So let's take them out of that competitive framework and figure out what works and get it as broadly applied as possible. So I think that's a great point. I I think Catherine's point is that if you had a more collaborative relationship between the regular school districts and the charter school districts, they could both benefit from that collaboration. But I agree with you. There's a a competitive competition there, and a lot of it's financial more than anything else. Right, um, right. Which is the way we fund charter schools, and also the the process of deciding when charter schools are established. I mean, that does feed into that competition um, because you don't have to get community buy-in, you don't have to get support. So it's a, it creates a very adversarial environment. I'm, I'm sure you remember the articles from Newark not that long ago when you had meetings attended by hundreds of parents that were screaming at each other between the pro-charter and the anti-charter, and you're seeing that all over the state and the suburbs now with people just furious at each other. That is not helpful to anybody. That, that's just wrong. Uh, you know, uh, we've been talking a lot about charter schools, and I know your your group's a little bit more than just charter schools. Yes, I know we're charter a lot schools more right than now just now charter schools. are on the schools. forefront. So uh, you mentioned very early on uh, about vouchers. <coughs> and can you tell us why you're opposed to vouchers? Oh, gosh, I don't think we have enough time to go over all the reasons. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you the top couple. Well, first of all, um, a lot of the issues that that we touched upon in terms of what doesn't work with the way we do charters right now is this concept of individual parental benefit uh, at the cost of everybody else are are sort of taken to the extreme with a voucher. But I think that the, the most fundamental problem with vouchers is the assumption that taking a child out of a public school system and sending them to a private or religious school will improve their educational attainment. And we have 20 years of very good research out of places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that has had a local voucher program for that long. And the data is just conclusive that the children who go to a private or religious school with a voucher do not do better than the children who stay behind. And what they did is they... Uh, did a controlled study where children had a, whose parents had applied for a voucher and did not receive one 
were compared to children who did receive a voucher. Same, you know, population, demographically, same location. And the children who stayed in the public schools not only did, did as well, but generally did better than the children who got a voucher and went to a private or religious school. So I guess at the most fundamental level, it's just a bad idea for, for the kids who leave. Um, but it's also just devastating for the children who stay behind. The Opportunity Scholarship Act, which is what the voucher program is called that was proposed in New Jersey, um, if that went into effect, now there's two versions. There's a slightly smaller bill in the Assembly, and there's a bill in the Senate that would have exceeded a billion dollars in cost. A lot of that money would have come out of the existing school systems, and the way it works is it actually would have disproportionately come out of Camden and Newark schools. So it, the the Senate version of the bill, for example, would have had Camden and Newark students uh, who stay in the traditional public schools losing something like $150 million from those schools and subsidizing students in Lakewood who would have gone to private schools uh, because of the way the funding works based on need. And it, it, it's just crazy. You would have just decimated these already um, underfunded school districts, and no one would have benefited because you don't have – there's no benefit to the kids who leave, and there's obviously no benefit to the kids who are left behind. Um, there's also the whole issue of so much of the – funding would have gone to students who were already attending private school. Uh, the law that was proposed in New Jersey allowed a quarter of the funding at least, at least a quarter of the students would have been those who were already in private schools, but mm -hmm. it could have gone much higher than that because it depended on whatever money was left over at, uh, would go to students who were already in private schools. So in other words, if there wasn't enough demand from public school students, then the money would automatically go to students who were already enrolled in private schools. So basically we would be creating an entitlement program for kids who already attend private school to be subsidized by public dollars at a time when we're underfunding the public schools. So we thought that was a really bad idea. Uh, we also feel that it's not necessary because we have a public choice program, which if we're going to spend money, we would rather see that program improved and uh, more of the funding put into broadening the geographies uh, from which children can choose. So in other words, right now, if you are in a district and you want to go to another district that accepts, uh, that participates in the public choice program and accepts students from neighboring districts, your district pays for a radius of 20 miles. So one of the concerns with the public choice program is if you're a child in Newark, for example, there's not a lot of districts within a 20-mile limit that you could go to because they have to voluntarily accept the program. So we'd rather see the funding go to expanding that radius and allowing children to go to, let's say, a 30 or 40-mile radius and have the state pick up the transportation costs so that less damage is done to the finances of the sending districts, which are generally not able to afford it anyway. So the thought of taking that money and subsidizing kids who are already in private school didn't make any sense. So it just like no matter how you look at this, it's just a horrible, horrible idea. All right, and I guess you would you said it before, you see charter schools as an option, too, to help. Uh, oh, absolutely. Again, we're not against charter schools. We just want to make sure that they're run as efficiently and fairly as possible. Uh, <coughs> what about <coughs> excuse me, What about uh, school funding? Uh, you said that was one of your three issues. You support full funding in the, the SFRA, the school funding formula? Yeah, we do. Absolutely. Now, uh, I'll take Chris Christie's position. Where do you, where do you want to get the money from? Well, you had to. At least you left the easy questions till the end, right? <laughs> um, you know, it depends. 
how, I mean, obviously we're all waiting to see what the Supreme Court rules and mm-hmm. how quickly they phase in full funding. But there's always, I mean, you know, it's not like there's a set number of dollars in the kitty and if you use them up, it's all gone. It's a question of will and choices, right? And uh, we feel that funding the schools is pretty critical to New Jersey's future because people don't move to New Jersey for the weather or the infrastructure. They move here because of access to jobs and high-quality public education. So it's not just that it's the right thing to do for our children. It's the right thing to do for everybody to maintain the strength of those schools. And it does matter how much you spend. If it didn't, independent schools, private independent schools, wouldn't cost more than $21,000 per student. So if we don't fully fund our schools, then we're going to see consequences for New Jersey's economy. Um, so we have to make those choices. Uh, there is, uh, I know we're running out of time, but... Yeah, I'm going to have to cut you off there, Julia. Uh, I'd like to thank Julia Sass-Rubin from Save Our Schools NJ uh, for joining me today. And I'd like to thank the callers who participated. That brings us to the end of another conversation on New Jersey education. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. As I always say, our kids' education is too important not to talk about. If you have any issue or speaker you think would be good for this format, please contact me via email at rpinney at njsba.org, and have a good day.